Well, uh, this passage almost by itself, we could just leave out there and it's pretty convicting just before we even get into it. Um, speaking of the tongue and speaking of our words and speaking as the teacher here today and the very first line dealing with teachers, you're going to be judged stricter. There's a lot to this, but let's start with the tongue. So the tongue to a physician is a two ounce slab of mucous membrane. It is a membrane enclosing eight muscles. It's one of the only places in the entire body where you have muscles that don't surround a bone. Okay, so it's a unique in that way. So these eight muscles and the nerves enable us to chew, taste, swallow, and speak. Just imagine what it would be like if we didn't have tongues. No mother would sing their baby to sleep at night. No ambassadors would represent our nation to other nations. No teacher would stretch the mind of students. No pastor or friend could comfort someone. No complicated or controversial issue could ever be discussed or solved. Our communication would be reduced to grunts and shrugs. But at the same time, we see that the tongue is powerful. There's a lot of power in the tongue. I'm reminded of the majestic soaring rhetoric of some of the greatest speeches in the world. My favorite is from Winston Churchill when he dressed the nation. And he says, we shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. We shall never get up, give up. Winston Churchill's words led Britain to not surrender to the Nazis. I'm reminded of Abraham Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address when he says, four score and seven years ago, but the, the soaring words of this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. Powerful words that set the course of our nation. But I also think of the power of evil words. Adolf Hitler and the power of his speeches, which fomented so much hatred and destruction that the German people under the Nazi regime would wipe out, nearly wipe out the Jewish population. Same body part, same power, different uses, different results. So today we're going to be dealing with what James is discussing here, the use of the tongue. So here's our big idea. Genuine believers recognize themselves as teachers, but who are wary of the power of their tongues for good, but more likely for evil. So a genuine Christian, remember, we're dealing with what James has dealt with this entire time. How do I know if I'm a believer? How do I know that I am saved? How do I know? How do I know I'm the genuine article? So James is, again, dealing with that same thing. He says, recognizing that we're all teachers, but also recognizing that our tongues have power. And many times, most of the time, it's used for evil. So our first point, your tongue sets the standard for your judgment. Your tongue sets the standard for your judgment. Look at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, Remember, he keeps going back to that brother's thing over and over again. That's what we saw earlier, where we are the adopted family of Christ. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his tongue. As we've seen throughout, James is repeating what he heard Jesus teach. We see this from Matthew 18, 6, where he says, anyone who causes these little ones, these children to stumble, to believe in me, to sin, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around their neck and thrown into the deeps of the sea. So Jesus was saying, it's better that you be destroyed than to lead people astray with what you teach them. With greater responsibility comes greater expectations. Luke 12, 48, Jesus also says, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And to him they entrusted much, they will demand more. Now at this point, we'll pat ourselves on the back and say, that's why I never became a teacher. This only applies to Pastor John. This doesn't apply to me. I don't ever say anything with my tongue that would possibly get me into trouble. But what James is saying here is he's not saying, don't go be a teacher. This isn't a kind of a negative recruiting technique, right? He doesn't have a church full of people that are like, oh, we all want to be teachers. And he goes, ah, no, you shouldn't do that. What he's saying is you have to recognize your tongue constantly is teaching. You need to bridle that tongue. You need to calm down with that tongue. Because hopefully you guys are seeing that this tongue is not what we're really dealing with, right? It's just a pink organ that's inside your mouth. It's what your tongue does. It's the words that we create with our tongue and our mouths. Now, in our current world, we don't speak to each other as much as we used to using our mouths. We do a lot more speaking using our fingers. So I'm going to expand James's thing here, and I don't think it's at all a, a, a changing of what he's going for, because what he's not, he's not dealing with the tongue, really. He's dealing with the words that our mouths create. And so we have to also deal with the words that our fingers create as well. One of the glaring places that we see this is when we go online, what we post. We're polite to people to their faces, but rude to them online. So in James's world, we have, to, we, have to, we have to press into this word teacher. In James's world, a teacher is somebody who has disciples. That's what that word means. It means one with disciples. It, it would be like what James was talking about in chapter 2 when he said in the assembly. So the person is allowed to go up and speak to the synagogue or to the house church because the, the church recognizes him. And they'd say, okay, yeah, you know what you're talking about. Go up there. So they would be platformed. They would be granted access to the platform to speak. One thing we need to see is that we all have platforms that we use. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, we have platforms that we have been given in which we teach those around us. Not only that, but we have a platform right in our pocket with our cell phone. When we go online and we post something, we no longer have to have credentials to be teachers. We didn't have to go to graduate school and get a diploma that says, I'm a teacher. Now, anybody can be a teacher. And we as believers are constantly teaching. Anytime you quote an authority or you cite someone or you restate something you heard somewhere, you are teaching. You are telling someone, this is what you need to know. And so these warnings then apply to us. Because see, James' point here is not, don't be a teacher. 
It's just be careful how you teach because every single one of us is a teacher. And we need to recognize that when we teach, we will be judged with greater strictness. And this greater strictness is not from other people. It's from God, which is not to comfort us and go, oh, well, my people won't judge me. No, it's to discourage us and go, God's going to judge me. So James is saying words have an important, they're, they're really important. They're enormous. They're super influential. Is he kind of overselling this? He's kind of exaggerating because words are just words, right? I mean, I say words right now and then they're gone. Those words aren't here anymore. What's the big deal? I mean, come on, aren't there bigger, more important things? And James goes, actually, words are the most important thing. And I want to dig into this. And so he gives us some illustrations to help us understand this. He's going to teach us an object lesson. I think he takes after his half-brother Jesus quite a bit by telling us illustrations and examples of what he's teaching. So the first thing we see is, uh, our next point is that your tongue is small but powerful and destructive. So let's dig into this, the powerful part. James starts with the, with the good part. He says, your tongue has power. Your tongue has influence. And he starts in verse three. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are large, so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So horses, boats, what, how do these all work together? He's saying something small runs something big. Because what he wants to understand is he wants us to understand that we don't just have bodies that also have tongues. The tongues have our bodies. They take care of, they, 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 they run us. And we see this with the horses. So Loving the time that we live in, I was able to Google the average weight of a racehorse at the Kentucky Derby. It's 1,100 pounds. The average bit in those racehorses is a pound and a half. A pound and a half piece of metal about this big controls a thousand pound beast. There's a reason why we take horses and we measure our cars in horsepower. Horses are powerful. Throughout the history of the world, horses have been the means of transportation. They also have a mind of their own, which is why we put bits in their mouths. Well, okay, well, you have this little teeny bit, but you have this big hulking man on these horses, right? Wrong. Have you seen the Kentucky Derby? Have you seen the jockeys? The average age, the average weight is 118 pounds. I have a 12-year-old at home who weighs that much, right? That's not very much weight. It's not that the jockey is strong. It's that they have this bit that controls the horse. So James goes, okay, you're not an equestrian type of person. Are you nautical? Because let's talk nautical now. He says, boats, boats have these little teeny rudders that guide these gigantic boats. Now in, in James's time, the boats weren't that big. But in our time, the boats are really big. One of the biggest is the USS Eisenhower biggest, one of the biggest boats in the world. It weighs 94,000 pounds, or sorry, 94,000 tons. Now, tons don't do it for me. I'm still, I'm very American, and we deal pounds, and we don't deal with metrics, and we do all, you know, we do, we have, we, we're different. So how many is that in pounds? It's 188 million pounds. That is a ginormous ship. Well, if that doesn't wow you, then how about this? It's 1,100 feet long. 
That's three and a half football fields. That's from here to the other side of Gladstone High School. That's how long this is. 6,000 people live in this ship. 100 airplanes. This is a floating city. And this ginormous 188, or sorry, 188 million pound boat is directed by two little rudders that weigh 100,000 pounds each. The rudder is about the size of these chairs right here. And there's two of them, a gigantic boat that it controls. About 0.01% of its entire weight is those two little rudders. Just like our tongue is less than a half a percentage point of our body weight, and yet it controls what we do, and it has a huge impact. So James hits this in verse 5. He says that the, they boast in great things. The tongue has power, more power, an outsized power in our body. So that's the powerful tongue part. Now he moves into the destructive tongue. Verse 5, second part. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James doesn't use the word like here. He says it is. So this is a strong metaphor. It's very direct. See, the tongue turns things on its head. The tongue reveals the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. So the first picture we get is fire. Now we've had some experiences with fire in the last few months, haven't we? I know that seems like a long time ago in 2020, but we did have some fires. Luckily, I don't know of anybody that has lost anything or has been burned, but weren't we set on edge quite a bit by these fires? We canceled things. We stayed indoors. We were worried about whether the fires would get to us. We were in evacuation zones, right? This was expensive, disruptive, hazardous, and incredibly stressful to have all that smoke. Staying indoors because it was less smoky indoors. In my house, it's more smoky indoors because we regularly burn stuff. But see, here's the thing. The smallest spark causes this gigantic fire. That's what James's picture is here. And then he moves into this little kind of phrase in the ESV that says a world of unrighteousness. This is an odd phrase. It's just kind of plopped there. And if you look at all the different translations, nobody agrees on how to use this. But most of the commentators agree that what James is saying is your tongue is capable of lots and lots of evil. Every sinful tongue is a mini drama of all the sins in the world. If you observe someone's tongue long enough, you're going to see every single type of unrighteousness. And this fits with what we see in Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. So we see it's a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. And then we move into the staining of the whole body. Staining means to pollute or contaminate, and that it's a continuous contaminating. And I think, of, I think of stains on clothes. You know, I don't feel like I have a lot of spiritual gifts, but I do think one of my spiritual gifts is when I get a nice shirt, getting a stain on it the first time I wear it. I think that's probably one of my special talents, okay? Not sure how to turn it into being a superhero, but I'm going to keep working on it. So imagine a woman in her wedding dress, 
right? That gets in the wedding dress. She's got to get the dress on first before she can get the makeup on and get the hair done and all these pictures. And she's got this huge amount of time before the actual wedding. She's got to eat at some point. Are you going to go hand her a hamburger with extra cheese and lots of ketchup and mustard and go, here you go, and don't hand her a napkin or a bib or a something? Why would you do it? Well, one little stain, the tiniest drop of ketchup on that white wedding dress ruins the whole thing. And that's what James is talking about here. He's talking about how every single area in our life is stained by what our tongue says. Then he goes into a second one, setting on fire the entire course of life. The entire course of life means the beginning circling to the end. So it's the circle of life. It's the tongues having this un believable impact on our lives. Of all the muscles in our body, this is the one we exercise the most. It's kind of like when you, when you, when you say something that you, you shouldn't have and you want to try to take it back, you can't. Because just like my words are gone that after I say them, the influence on you, I can't control. It's like trying to put the toothpaste back into the tube. You can't do it. You know, we're, we, we've heard all these phrases like, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, the difference, the problem with that is that's not true. Sticks and stones, yeah, they break bones and they hurt things, but bones heal. Bruises go away, but words stick. Words can ruin. And the reason is, is because the third one we see is that they're set on fire by hell, right there at the end of six. This word hell is the word Gehenna which means the Valley of Hinnon. In Jesus' time, this was southwest of the city of Jerusalem. It was a dump. It's the place where they threw their refuse. It was so bad that they constantly were burning it to try to get it to go away. It's where, most likely, if Joseph of Arimathea had not come and asked for Jesus' body, it's where they would have thrown his body. Because anybody who's a criminal who dies, who does not have family, they were thrown there. So this is the most putrid, nasty, gross place you can imagine. And this is the place that Jesus says, hell is like. Mark 9, he says that. So James is saying, when you, when you use your tongue for evil, that evil is reminiscent of hell. A Puritan writer named Edward Reiner says, an unbridled tongue is the chariot of the devil, wherein he rides in triumph. Now I look at that and I go, wait a sec, but I'm a believer. I have Jesus in my heart. What do you mean hell is influencing my tongue? What does that mean? Are you saying like, I'm over here and I love Jesus and like the devil's like, like a marionette and making me talk? Well, no, that's not what this is talking about. Let me explain it this way. I have, I love the, I love British accents. I love British accents. I'm not going to try to do one for you because inver- invariably I'll sound really bad. But I have a really close friend who's a school teacher who I used to teach with who has a British accent and it's great. Man, she sounds so smart. It's partially because she is smart. She's a doctor. But she sounds so smart because when I think British accent, I think smart. When people meet her, first thing they ask is, where are you from? She doesn't go, North Portland. She says, oh, Britain. Oh, what part? Oh, I was born in West Hampshire, Newsom, whatever, right? Do people ask us that, right? I kind of want to go. I've been to England. Nobody asked, oh, I... Where are you from? I hear your accent. Oh, Oregon. I love Oregon accents. They sound so smart. They don't do that, right? And if they do that somewhere in the world, I want to go there because that would be fun to be loved for my accent. 
But what does that accent tell us? It tells us where she's from, and it's clear. She can't hide it because it's her accent. And the same thing is true for what James is talking about here. He says, when you speak, it sounds like you're somebody on the highway to hell. You sound like somebody who belongs in hell. May that never be for us. You're like, well, that seems like a a little harsh. Again, James is channeling Jesus on this, right? With Peter. Peter comes out and goes, Jesus, you're in the wrong. And what does Jesus say in response? Matthew 16, get behind me, Satan. He's not saying, well, Peter, you've just swapped places with Satan. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're speaking for Satan. You're doing Satan's work for him based on what you say. And that's exactly what James is talking about here. He's saying it is on fire by hell. So now the Bible lays out how the tongue is destructive. And it lays out different words to tell us how the tongue is destructive. The first word that is used in the Bible is the word gossip. Now, this is something we can do online. This is something we can do in person. It's when we're talking about somebody to share information for no good purpose. It's the, oh, have you heard about so-and-so? Oh, did you know that da-da-da? It's just sharing information behind their backs that you would never talk about in front of them. And we as Christians, unfortunately, we do this sometimes. When, when instead of putting someone in a good light when we're praying for them, we put out all the details, all the juicy parts. As a matter of fact, it, it, our, our world is so fallen, we have entire businesses, entire corporations built around spreading gossip about celebrities, spreading gossip about people that are out in the public eye. Gossip. Innuendo is another one. This is a near cousin of gossip. This is when you say something to belittle somebody, but you do it in a way that you can kind of deny it, right? It's like, well, I didn't mean it that way. You took it wrong. Here's an example of that. There was a captain one time whose first mate was known to go, known that he would go and get drunk from time to time. So one day the first mate came back on the boat. The captain's like, you're drunk. So the captain, in the official captain's log, went in and wrote, first mate drunk today. Well, the first mate didn't like this. It looked really bad. So he's like, I'm going to get that captain back. So you know what he did? He went in and got in on the, the captain's log, and he wrote, captain sober today. Well, it's no big deal, right? Just saying the captain's sober, he was. But by implication, it meant the rest of the days he was not sober. He was drunk. So you see how innuendo works. You're not actually saying it, but you're saying it. And the Bible's very clear that that's not not okay either. Flattery. Here's another example. See, gossip is talking about someone behind their backs, saying things you would never say in front of them. Flattery is saying things to a person's face that you would never say behind them. Right? This is going up to someone and saying, you're awesome. But if you were over here talking to your friend about them, you would say, they are not awesome. They're terrible. So flattery is like bearing false witness. It's being right out there in front. Criticism. This is one that I struggle with. When I have jealous or when I have self-doubt that I don't think I'm measuring up, it's when you take someone who's doing something that you don't think you can do and you try to bring them down. You try to pull them down. Because they're doing something that you want to do or you wish you could do or you wish you had that opportunity. So instead of, oh, that's awesome, they get to do that, you go, yeah, but you know what? They're, mm. that's criticism. And the last one, the worst of them all, 
is blasphemy. Blasphemy. Attributing something the Holy Spirit has done to Satan. You can't do this with your hands and your feet. Oh, my big toe's blaspheming. It doesn't do that. This is all word-based. This is all mouth-based. This is the lowest of the low in the uses of our tongues. There's nothing worse. And so we see all of these and we go, the tongue is destructive. What do we do with that? Well, before we get to the answer on what to do, we got to keep going deeper. And I want to share with you guys a quote from Thomas Watson. He's a a Puritan. And this this quote stings a little. He says, Some care not what they say in their passion. They will censure, they will slander, and wish evil of others. But how can Christ be in the heart when the devil has taken possession of the tongue? Let them whose tongues are set on fire take heed that they do not one day in hell desire a drop of water to cool them. The Puritans, they cut right through it. So we see we're going to be judged by how we use our tongue. We're going to have to understand it's powerful and destructive. And then third, we need to understand that taming the tongue is not possible by us. We cannot tame the tongue. For the tongue is uncontrollable. We cannot contain it. Verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. In the garden, man was given the mandate to subdue the earth. And one of the ways we have done this is by taming animals. I mean, you can see there are so many different animals that are randomly tamed. I mean, from, you know, people that go and they can kiss cobras to taming lions or tigers and bears to do different things or giant killer whales. I remember when I was a kid, I went to SeaWorld down in San Diego and I saw killer whales doing things. I was like, I don't think I could do half that stuff. They had people riding on them. They were jumping up and doing flips. They were hitting balls out. It was amazing. And it was all because the trainer had a piece of fish that they would tell him to do this, and they tamed him. But James says, no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Philip's translation of the Bible says, instead of restless evil, it says, always liable to break out. Like that supervillain in your comic book. Batman locked him away. Oh, he'll get out. Oh, he's dead. Oh, he'll be back in a future issue. Same thing goes for the tongue. Kill it 50 days in a row. The 51st day, it's ready to go again. It is a restless evil. But here's the thing. That word restless is used for someone else in the Bible as well. 1 Peter 5, 8. Satan prowling around like a lion. Restless lion. That's That's the same word. It's the same concept. In Job, it says that the devil was out cruising through the earth looking for who he could tempt. So when our tongue is animated by the fires of hell, it takes on the nature of the one who is reigning in hell. The devil. Satan. Look at what Romans 3, 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. See, we can't control the tongue. Only God can. James wants us to see how hopeless this is because it drives us to the Lord. We cannot tame this. We cannot tame it. We need help. So first, we're going to just 
analyze how we do this as a community, as a church. How do we talk to each other? Do we talk to each other kind, kindly? Do we talk to each other nicely? How about when we talk about others? Do we put them in the best light or do we give in all the details? How about when we're online? How about when we're talking about somebody that we don't actually know and we're talking about them? Are we talking to them and saying things that we wouldn't say if they were sitting right in front of us? What about those we disagree with? Do we say things that we wouldn't say to them in person? Because remember, 2 Corinthians 13, we talked about this last week. We have to constantly examine ourselves because the tongue does not go away. The tongue is here to stay. The words that come out of us are not going to go away. We're not going to stop talking. That's not what the, this, this is about. It's about the tongue being under control, and it only is under control when we are in Christ. So we must check ourselves continuously. So our fourth point, consistency with your tongue is impossible without a changed heart. Consistency with your tongue is impossible without a changed heart. So we had the judgment is based on how we use our tongue. We have a powerful, destructive tongue, an untamable tongue, and now we have a revealing tongue. The tongue lets us know where we're at. The tongue lets us know how we're doing. Verse 9, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in his likeness. This is hypocrisy, folly, to bless God in our worship service and then to go out and curse someone else. This is that doubleness that James has been fighting against so far. So when we use the word curse, we hear it a couple different ways. The way I remember as a kid was we didn't, you know, you don't curse meant don't use swear words. Don't use those words that you wouldn't use in polite company, those four-letter words or whatever else. Don't swear. That's not what this is talking about. Other people, when they hear curse, they think more magical or like a voodoo doll where you call down the spirits to have bad things happen to this person. It's a little bit more like that, but not quite. This Greek concept, this word, means a blatant expression of passionate, surging ill will. It means thinking badly of someone so much that you just really want them to fail and just disappear. The world would be a better place if so-and-so wasn't here. The world would be a better place if so-and-so had no platform. That surge of ill will. We don't call on magical, mystical fairies to come down and take care of it for us, but we do this, don't we? The last two weeks, there's been a lot of cursing of people of different political parties than you. There's no reason to believe people who do not think like you are given the benefit of the doubt. In fact, many times, if someone thinks different than you, you demonize them. You say they are the most vile, terrible, they are not fill in the blank. I heard one Christian leader this week say that if you don't agree with him and vote the way he did, you're not a Christian. Warnings against being false teachers. That's what that's talking about. See, because ultimately, we are all made in the image of God. It says the likeness of God made in the image of God. I don't care what churches put on their, their banners when you're driving around and they say things like, we're all God's children. No, we're not. That's not what the Bible says. You're God's children if you're adopted in, but you all are made in God's image. I know what they're trying to go for. They're trying to say, well, we're all God's children. We should all get along, but they're going about it wrong. 
Because ultimately, the reason why we should get along is that we are made in God's image. We are image bearers. We're little mini reflections of God. The best way I explained this to my son, when we were talking about Veterans Day this last week, we put our flag up. And as we were putting it up, I was explaining to him the rules about the flag. Don't touch the ground. You don't have it up when there's no light on it. You know, just things like that. And he was like, why do we do that? Is this flag special? And I said, yes, it's special. Not because of the flag or the post or the material, but because of the fact that people have died for this flag. We are going to respect it because of what it represents on Veterans Day. We're not going to touch it on the ground. We're not going to leave it up with no light on it. Because the flag's special? No, because of what it represents. Same thing goes for us. We are made in God's image. We are little mini reflections. And when we belittle an image bearer, when we say you are worthless, I wish you were gone, you are calling God's creation garbage. And not just any creation, the one that looks just like him. You're defacing the image bearer. See, we deserve dignity, and it has nothing to do with the fact that we agree with them. It has nothing to do with the fact that we're all God's children. No, we are made in God's image. So then the question is, what do we do with that? You see, President Trump is made in God's image. Have any of you cursed him recently? Oh, I'm not talking about disagreeing with him, but I'm saying, oh, that worthless piece of whatever. How about a person wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt? Have we cursed them recently? Do your words reflect blessing or curse? Now, I got to tell you, those two may have stung, but this next one stung me bad. Governor Brown. I have not had a good attitude about Kate Brown. I have spoken about her in ways that were absolutely a curse. And I don't know, you know, Lord in, the Lord in his d- dramatic understanding of all of history brought this passage this week with Friday having the governor stepping into our lives again and saying we can't do this. Any other week, I don't know if I see that Governor Brown is somebody that I've spoken curses towards that I have to repent of. But this week, God in his, his foresight saw that. And as I'm writing these notes, I'm going, oh, that one hurt, Lord. That hit me right there. I mean, I have a friend who, whenever he refers to Kate Brown, he doesn't write her name out. He uses a picture of poop, the poop emoji. He puts it on his phone and says, poop said this. And I laughed and thought that was funny. And I may have even done it. I don't remember. I, pl- I pray that I didn't. Your your pastor's a sinner. Hope you all knew that before you got into this. But how dare I think the world would be a better place without Kate Brown? God, you made a mistake. That image bearer doesn't need to be here. So what labels have we been using for people on different sides of our political spectrum? Are we worthless, terrible, hate them? Or are we, I disagree with their politics, but they're still image bearers. 
See, everything we do online, everything we do with our words, we have to realize that there's a person on the other side. And that person is an image bearer of God. And God help us, Christ died for them. Who are we to say they, don't, they shouldn't belong? Are we giving them the dignity that that implies? See, our tongue, our mouth is a spiritual barometer. It tells us what's going on inside. Because see, James wants us to be genuine. He doesn't want us to be fake and gold-plated. He wants us through and through to be genuine believers. So he hammers this home in verses 10 through 12. From the same mouth come blessings and curses. My brothers, things, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. These things ought not be so, is saying, this is not the way it should be. This is the gospel. Remember, he keeps going back to this brothers, brothers, brothers. He's saying, you're a part of Jesus's family. This is not the way our family works. And we'll see how that ties to the solution in a minute. The idea that a Christian could, could have a mouth that says the things that some of our mouths are saying is as absurd as thinking an apple tree can produce oranges or a cow can produce soda pop. It's absurd. But yet we just go, oh, well, I just speak the truth. I, you know, sometimes I'm a little bit harsh. The worst part about it, and this again, this is me talking to myself, it's not I didn't accidentally stumble into saying things about Kate Brown. I chose to. How bad is that? James drives home this point. He says, blessing God while cursing his people cannot be what happens. It does not match. So now we turn to what is the solution? And the solution is simple. It's the gospel. When you think about it, if you're like me, it's not the things I've done that I've had to repent for with my body. It's the things I've said. Nine out of 10 times, it's 99 out of 100 times, it's things I've said that I have to repent for. My goodness, parenting is repenting to your kids many, many times about the things you say, how you say in the wrong way. So as we finish up here, I want to give us some practical helps to think about, but I also want to point us to the eternal help that needs to animate those practical helps. This week, an article uh, from Kevin DeYoung came out, and he, he put out four things that we can think about as we communicate. The first one is what I'm saying making it harder for people to hear what really matters. There's so much noise about so much stuff right now. Is, is if I, 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 so many things that I'm all upset about that when it comes down to something that's really important, like the eternal destination of people, are they going to miss that because I'm always upset? Like the boy who cries wolf. Well, what happens when it is a wolf? They just think, oh, it's the same as before. Second, is, is the words that I'm saying, is it making it harder for me to be around? I have some friends I love them dearly. I grew up with them. I, I, can't, I, I, I can't look at what they post online. And this was even before this year. Just because it's so just, ugh, it's nasty. It just makes me feel gross. And when I'm in person, there are certain things you just don't talk about. And it's not even politics. It's just certain life things. And I think about that for us. Are there certain things that will make me less 
likely to have people wanting to be around me. Thirdly, am I speaking about things that I really don't know about? You know, there's an election going on in this country on the other side of the earth. Well, I have an opinion. Who cares? You live in Gladstone. You're not a member of that country. Why are you spouting an opinion? Lastly, and this one most importantly, am I animated more by what I read in Scripture or by what I see on the news? What gets me moving? What gets me angry? What gets me happy? What gets my body going a certain direction? Is it the television or is it God's word? And so as we do this, we need to think, am I being accurate or am I being hyperbolic? Am I respecting others or am I belittling others? Am I trying to make others look lower than me? And as we do this, hopefully we can see that this is impossible. If we set the standard up that you're never allowed to sin with your mouth, we're never going to hit it. So James gives us the answer. He implies it in verse 10 when he says, these things ought not to be so, saying, if you're a part of the family, we don't do it this way. But he doesn't just leave us there. So spoiler alert, we're going to skip ahead to chapter 4. We'll hit it again here in a couple weeks. But this is what James says. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the only way that we are going to make our tongues, the only way that our tongues are ever going to do anything of value is if we get a changed heart. We get more of his spirit. So the first thing we have to do before a heart can be changed, we must repent. Repent, acknowledge the fact that we've used our mouths inappropriately and plead with the Lord to put the Holy Spirit even more in us so that we overflow with the sweet springs. Look at the promise in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Because Jesus said in Luke 6, the abundance of the heart, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We need redeemed hearts. This is not a one-time deal. It is a continuous repent, repent, repent. And it's not enough to just say, well, uh, I did this and it's bad and I'm not going to do it again. You, I did this, it's bad. Lord, I need more of you because you are the only solution to my heart problem. Jesus uses many metaphors for this. Abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit. Let me well up a spring of life in you. This is what he wants to do, and he promises he will do it in us. It's not about a bunch of rules. It's not about a bunch of guidelines. It's about submission to him and allowing him to do the work on you. So I pray we will begin to do that. I know I need to do it, and I believe we all need to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for not leaving us in the muck and in the mire. Lord, thank you for not leaving us with an impossible list of rules that we have to try to do in our own strength. But Lord, you left these rules and these guidelines for us to do in your strength. What an incredible gift, Lord. Unlike all the wor world religions where it's do, 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 and hope you make it, Lord, we can't do it. You can do it in us. Lord, fill us up 
with your spirit. Give us the ability to use our words. Lord, I pray that you would use New Life Church Gladstone and the words that we utter and the things that we type and the words that we say to be fresh, sweet water in this world of putrid, nasty words. Lord, I pray that that's that's what we would stick out. That's how we would stick out. Help us to use our words rightly, Lord. Give us the strength to do it. In your name, amen.